Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. This is episode 109. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we go jobs to be done hunting with Tony Alec. The Business of Software Podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. What are your customers trying to achieve? And how can you help them get there? Tony Alec is one of the main pioneers of Jobs to Run Theory and inventor of the outcome-driven innovation process. In this talk, he discusses why creating a disciplined approach to uncovering and capturing the job your customers need done is a huge step forward for your business. Tony is back at Boss on the 8th of June, which, if you're listening to this on the day it goes live, that is tomorrow from midday UK time. There's still a chance to join. Visit businessofsoftware.org to register. But for now, let's journey back to 2014 and the early days of jobs as we look at customer-centered innovation. Happy listening. So um, obviously we're all here to um, make a change in the world these days, right? Anyone here running a business, starting a business, creating products? Uh, Yeah, I think we all are, right? Perfect, perfect. So I'm in the right place. That's excellent. Something that, this is something we all share, right? We all want to create uh, great products. And one of the uh, first uh, products I worked on was back in the 1980s. I worked for IBM for 10 years, and I uh, worked on a a product called the PC Junior. Anyone familiar with that product? Yeah, I see it gets the respect it deserves, that's right. (laughs) The, uh, The day after that product was introduced, in the Wall Street Journal, the headline reads, PC Junior is a flop. And I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. We just came up with this product yesterday, and, and they're already calling it a flop. And unfortunately, they were right. Uh, that was a bad thing. Uh, you know, the very next day, I, I'm thinking, how are they measuring the value of this product? Obviously, they were measuring it in some way we weren't. And only if we did, you know, only if we could figure out how they're measuring the value of the product, we could just create it in, in a way that would be more meaningful and, uh, and be successful. But that was a tough lesson. and. Um, and the, the truth is that most of you will fall into the, same, uh, into, into the same situation at some point in your career. It's extraordinarily hard to create a new product. And most of you will go a lifetime without creating a successful product in the marketplace, which is truly unfortunate because we're all here to make changes in the world and to create products that are really going to uh, uh, be game changers. So we don't want you to uh, come to the same fault, right? Let's, uh, let's think of a new way to, to innovate that you can uh, avoid the 95% failure rates. And I always found this interesting. You think of uh, new product failure rates are about 95%, new business failure rates, 95%. The, um, the rate of new ventures failing over 95%. It's pretty consistent. It's really hard to get things right, especially if there's no great process for helping you to get those things right and making sure you're creating the right products. So what I want to talk about is, you know, how, how can I help you, hopefully, uh, create a better product and not succumb to this and not be part of the PC Junior Club, but be part of a club that's, that's far more successful. So let's talk about that. We're going to talk about innovation as a process. And I love thinking about it as a process. And I, I love thinking about it as an equation where you have solutions and you have needs. And what you're trying to do is to figure out what solutions, what technologies, tools, techniques, can we combine in some way to satisfy some set of unmet needs? 
Now, just like in any great equation, there's constants and variables in the equation. We're trying to figure out, well, what's the constant and what's the variable, right? Well, obviously, the solution is the variable. That changes over time. Now, what that means is there's got to be a constant in the equation. So let's think about how this typically works. There's a couple ways to innovate. One is to come up with lots of ideas and then see which ones address customers' unmet needs. And the other way is to uncover the customer's unmet needs and then design a solution that specifically addresses them. Now, of course, most traditional uh, approach to innovation does the former. It's encouraged. Lots of ideas. Come up with ideas, brainstorm. Go out of the box, open innovation. Let's get more ideas from external sources. You can't have too many ideas. And if you have lots of ideas, you're inherently increasing your chances of one of them being good. So the theory goes. And so you take all those ideas, you filter those down into the ones you think are going to succeed in the marketplace, you put them into development, and you begin to create them. You, you, you build them. And you test them with customers. You bring them back out and ask them, you know, what do you think of this product? How can we make this better? And you go through this iterative process as you're creating the product to help people, uh, to, to help create a product that you think is going to win in the marketplace. Now, this is interesting because all this leads to uh, terms like pivoting, like if you get it wrong, you can pivot and try to get it right, or maybe you can fail fast. Uh, but wouldn't it be better yet to just get it right the first time? This is really interesting because what we're trying to do in the innovation process to, is to answer a lot of very key questions, like who am I trying to create value for, for example, and what problem am I trying to help them solve, and exactly what are their unmet needs, and which of those are unmet. Because again, we're trying to come up with solutions that address unmet needs. If we can't do that successfully, our products aren't going to succeed in the marketplace. And in the traditional approach, many of these questions aren't even answered after, you know, when the product is launched, which is not good, of course. And that's why there's a, just a 5% success rate. We want to flip this around so that it's done uh, entirely different. Uh, innovation should be a needs-first process where you come up with the, the customer's needs and answer all these key questions up front. Who's the customer? What problem are they trying to solve? What customer segment should we go after? Which unmet needs should we target? Now, how many of you think that you follow a, a needs-first approach to innovation versus a ideas-first approach? A show of hands. About half? OK. And uh, how many of you that follow a needs-first approach would say that there's agreement in your company as to what a customer need is? about, we lost a lot of people there, didn't we? Right? And of those three or four that have agreement on what a customer needs is, um, how many of you would say that, um, that you have a complete set of customer needs and you know all your customers' needs? Okay, so there we go. All right. So uh, it's interesting. You may be following the needs-first approach, or at least trying to, but as you know, it's extraordinarily hard to do this, right? <clears throat> Why is this? Customer needs are these elusive things that have not been well-defined as part of an innovation process. Now, you think about any process. Any process has to have good inputs in order to get a great result. And the innovation process is simply two things. I'm trying to come up with solutions that address unmet needs. If I don't know what an unmet need is, and, and I can't figure out which needs are unmet, and I can't get my teams to agree which needs are unmet so we can agree on what solutions to work on, then it's going to be extremely hard to be successful in the marketplace. 
Let's look at all these different statements. Delighters, exciters, must-haves, solution specs. All these terms are used to describe customer need statements. Now, you think they're all right? How many of you believe that customers have latent needs, needs that they don't even know they have? I'm gonna to prove to you that that's not true. They know their needs. <laughs> Beautiful, huh? And um, so this is intriguing. Uh, this is one of the key elements of the whole process. We've been, we've been taught to think about innovation in such a way from a solution and product-centric standpoint over the years that we've, we believe these, these misconceptions about innovation to be true. Like customers, they have latent needs. They can't articulate their needs. Their needs, their needs change quickly over time. Uh, I'm going to show you that none of those things are true, which is great news for you because since they're not true, there is actually a way to get at them and to uh, execute the innovation process in a much more efficient manner. So it all begins with this, uh, the jobs you've done theory and the thinking, but this is really just the starting point. What, what Levitt did, I think, is to open the door to a new way to think about the problem. Now, all of you creating products, and you can focus on the product, the drill, but you can also focus on the underlying reason people are buying the product, which is the job. And this is where jobs to be done theory starts. People, don't, the people are buying products and services to get a job done, and if we can figure out what that job is, we can analyze that job and break it down step by step to figure out how people measure success along each step of the way to get the job done. And then we can come up with solutions and see how well they address those metrics that people are using to measure success when getting the job done. That's the essence of jobs to be done thinking. Now, making that work, of course, is, is quite difficult. And that's what we want to go through. Everything that we've, we'll talk about here is embodied in this process that we've called outcome-driven innovation. Uh, we've um, been working on this for the past 22 years or so. Uh, and again, all this stemmed from uh, the, the failures at IBM. And, and again, think of, think of the scenario. PC Junior is a flop. People are using some metrics to make that determination. If we can figure out what those metrics are well in advance, we'll just create our product around those metrics, and then the headline would be PC Junior, greatest thing since sliced bread. So how do we get there? It's all part of the journey. We're going to cover this in three different buckets, market definition, needs analysis, and strategy. So let's talk about markets first. And you'll notice here there's a theme. Uh, in, in, in traditional fashion, uh, markets and needs and strategies really defined around solutions and technology as opposed to being customer-centric. So we're going to show you the customer-centric view of the same thing. Okay. So let's go through this. How, how are markets typically defined? Well, they're usually defined around a product or a technology. The LP market, the CD market, the 8-track market, if that's a market, the MP3 market. And these technologies, of course, come and go over time. But the interesting thing is, when these technologies go away, it doesn't mean the underlying market disappears. There's still something there, right? The products come and go, but the underlying market is to get this certain job done. So people have been, have been trying to listen to music uh, forever. And what we see happening is better and better technologies come along to help get the job done better. Now, this is one of the key steps in understanding where to go with all this. If we can focus on the job, and define the market around the job, define needs around the job, you can dramatically reduce the risk of failure in your products. 
Now, this is hard to do. I'm going to tell you how to do this, but this mindset, the shift of being product-centric to, to become customer-centric is really hard because we've been trained to think about solutions our whole lives. Our, our first instinct is to come up with ideas. Our first instinct is to solve the problem before we truly define the problem. And this is all part of the discipline that has to come into play in order to make this right. So the, first, the very first thing we do is define what the market is. The market's a group of people who are trying to get some job done, the way we talk about it. And we have to decide who is the key customer? Who are we trying to create value for? Now, in many cases, this is, um, is quite a difficult decision to make. There's people who use the product, obviously, but there's people who buy the product. There's people that influence the purchase decision. There's people that install the product. There's people that repair the product, they maintain it, they upgrade the product. There's lots of elements that are going on here. So how do you begin? How do you ensure that what you're working on is going to have the greatest chance of success in the marketplace? And there is a formula for this. And the formula says that true value is best created for the person who's using the product to get the job done. That's the person around which the market exists. Uh, of course, you have to install the product, you have to upgrade it, you have to maintain it, but people aren't buying products so they can install them and upgrade them and maintain them. They're buying products to help get some core functional job done. So focusing on the job executor makes great sense. Also, in many cases, the buyer is not the user of the product. We made this mistake back at IBM. We thought Computerland was our customer. Anyone remember Computerland? Yeah, it was a bad mistake, but, um, and we were wrong, right? It's, of course, the person using the product to get the job done, that's the customer. Uh, now, the buyer is a critical part of the, the, uh, the um, equation, of course, because they're using some set of financial metrics to decide which products are better than others. And that's critical, but it's not the primary thing that you want to focus on when you're starting out with the innovation process. So, when, and I'm not saying that any of these things are unimportant, but I'm saying when it comes to innovation, of primary importance is the person who's going to use the product. If you can't create a product that's going to get the job done better, then nobody's going to want to buy it. Then nobody's going to want to install it. Nobody's going to want to maintain it and upgrade it. So in terms of priority, let's focus on who's going to be using the product to get the job done. So again, this is the way we define the market, by a group of people who are trying to get a job done. Right? Group of people, job done. Music enthusiasts, listening to music. Parents passing life lessons on to their children. And there's literally, of course, thousands, hundreds of thousands of markets. And the first step is to define the market around this format. And what this allows you to do then is to actually analyze this market through a new lens. Because you can actually go talk to music enthusiasts about this job of listening to music. And you can break it down step by step so you can understand what metrics people use to measure success from getting the job done. So that's exactly what we do. Uh, this is what we call a job map. It's different than a process map. It's different than a customer journey experience. It's what the customer is trying to accomplish, which is distinctly different from what they're probably currently doing. Uh, what they're doing is probably doing a lot of workarounds and, and making do with what they have. And they're probably cobbling together lots of different solutions to try to get the job done. We don't want to lay out what they're doing. We want to lay out what are they trying to do. And in any typical job, they're trying to plan something out. They're trying to then gather all the inputs that are necessary to execute the job. They're trying to organize them in some fashion that will make them work together. 
Then they confirm that everything's in place to make this happen. They then execute the job. And while executing, they monitor the execution to make sure the job's getting done correctly and the output is right. If it's not, they make modifications as they go and then conclude. Now we've analyzed hundreds of jobs over the years and they all follow this similar pattern. But of course, we apply it to each situation. In the case of listening to music, you may want to decide, you know, what do I need the music for? Am I throwing a party? Am I trying to relax and go to sleep? What is the situation? Then I need to gather all the music that I want to listen to for that time period. And I need to organize it in the right fashion. Confirm that everything's ready to go. I get to listen to the music, make modifications, add, subtract songs as we go, and assess my experience at the end. Now, the reason we create the job map is because once we know what the job is, we can envision the solution of the future. The solution of the future will get the entire job done because people don't want to have to cobble together different solutions to try to make all this happen. This is why all markets work. All markets evolve towards helping customers get a job done. M&As occur because people are trying to put together pieces to get more of the job done. Uh, this is why, um, you know, uh, this, is, this is just a general trend in terms of the way people think about their extensions and their um, adjacent markets. And when we start thinking about this, you think about CDs, MP3s, so well, CDs and, um, and uh, LPs, for example, they only get part of the job done. They allow you to listen to the music. But it took uh, a long time before uh, iPods came along and helped get a lot more of the job done. And what this shows you is that once you come up with a technology that gets more of the job done, it becomes adopted for use. But it has to get a significant portion of the job done better before it gets adopted for use can't just be a little bit better. And then you see uh, streaming services come along and get even more of the job done better, and they get adopted for use. So this is the thought. If you can envision, if you can de define what that job is, you can envision the future, because the ultimate solution will get that job done. Now, it may take decades uh, before you can figure out how to do it. In the software world, it should only take, what? Couple months, right? You guys can do it that quick. It is. A, it's better. It's a little easier than the hardware world, I suppose. But you can envision the ultimate solution because you know it has to do all these different things. So the goal then is to figure out, well, how do we get there? You know, I see what we have now. How do I get it to execute all these different steps and help customers get the entire job done? Well, that takes us into the next step: is to figure out, well, how do I how do I know I'm helping to get all the job done? And this is where we start defining customer needs. When we think about needs, we think about a very specific metric that people are using to measure success when getting the job done. That's why we define a need. So we have a very specific definition. Again, it's the metrics that people use to measure success when getting the job done. We call them a desired outcome, hence outcome-driven innovation, because everything's built around knowing what these, these statements are. They're measurable, they're controllable, We've spent a couple of decades trying to uh, effectively define and optimize the way we structure an outcome statement. This is really the key to success and in innovation, is getting good inputs. It's really the key to success in any, executing any process, have good inputs that don't introduce any variability into the process. And we've spent a lot of time figuring out what does introduce variability into the process and how can we successfully eliminate it. So these statements uh, have very unique characteristics. One is certainly they're, all, they're void of solutions. They don't talk about technology. They don't, uh, 
they don't infer a solution in any manner. They're solution agnostic or independent. Because in the end, we're going to test solutions to see how well they address these metrics. And in any good equation, if you start mixing up constants and variables in the equation, you can't solve it. So we have to be very true to the fact that these statements are, are solution free. They're also stable over time, which is intriguing because, of course, we all learn that customer needs are ever-changing and they're latent needs and people don't even know they have them. But people do know that they're trying to get a job done and they do know how they're measuring success along each step of the way. Now, sure, people didn't know they needed a microwave oven, but they did know that they were trying to minimize the time it takes to cook a dish and minimize the likelihood of overcooking a meal or undercooking a meal. They knew all those metrics. They've known those metrics for decades but they didn't know that a microwave was a better solution to get the job done. So we think about these statements as the glue that holds the innovation process together. And you can see how they're formed. Again, very specific. Minimize the time it takes to determine how much music will be needed uh, when gathering the music. Minimize the time it takes to determine which songs to include. Um, <clears throat> when organizing it, minimize the time it takes to determine the order in which to play the songs. Minimize the likelihood that the, song, that the music sounds distorted. Uh, minimize the time it takes to remove that, uh, song, the songs that you no longer want to hear. Now, all these statements are true today. They were true five years ago. They were true 25 years ago. They'll be true five years from now. And the reason is, all these statements are built around the job. The job is exactly the same. People are still trying to listen to music. What's changing over time are these different solutions that come along to help people get the job done better. The solutions are the variables in the equation. The outcomes are the constant in the equation. Again, if we can identify these constants in the equation, we can systematically test solutions to see which ones address them the best and pick the best solutions to go work on and increase our, chance, our chances of being successful in the marketplace. So that's the ultimate goal. Of course, getting these statements is not simple, but customers do know that this is how they're measuring success. And if you lead customers down the path and ask them uh, the right questions, uh, you can come up with these answers. And let me give you one hint as to how that's done. The only way to get a job done better is to get it done faster, more predictably, without any variability, and with high throughput or output. So everything's, there's no waste, it's 100% efficient. So ideally, it'd be extremely quick, no variability, 100% throughput. So um, knowing that, we ask questions around those three different um, possibilities. You know, what makes executing a specific step time consuming? What makes executing a specific step uh, go off track, unpredictable? What makes it inefficient? What causes waste? And asking questions like that help you understand and help get in the conversation of describing these outcome statements. The third piece of all this gets into the strategy itself. Now we have the inputs, right? The, the beautiful part about having these outcomes, uh, and by the way, there's usually between 50 and 150 different outcome statements that describe success when getting a job done. It's not like customers have one or two needs or five or 10 needs. It's usually that there are between 50 and 150 different metrics that they use to measure success when getting the job done. And you wanna capture all of them, right? You don't wanna miss any because you don't know where the opportunities lie. You can't manufacture an unmet need. Right? So you need, you could try, but it's really hard. It's actually a lot easier just to go satisfy an unmet need instead of to try to manufacture one. 
And if you do this correctly, you want to cast a very wide net and make sure you understand all those needs, and then you can figure out precisely which ones to go after, which is where we go next with all of this. This is done in a more quantitative fashion, and the goal here is to figure out which needs are unmet and which ones do I want to go target. And this is really the essence of strategy. This is the decision point at which your company is going to either succeed or fail. And you sit there and pick, what unique value am I going to bring to the marketplace? Which set of unmet needs am I choosing to go address that nobody else is addressing that's going to differentiate me from my competition? Now, getting this right and getting it wrong, again, is the difference between success and failure in your, in your market. So getting it right is critical. Let's say that there are 100 needs in the market. And let's say that there are 10 unmet needs. What do you think the chances are of anyone in your company randomly coming up with a solution that addresses all of those 10 unmet needs if you don't know what those 10 unmet needs are? Pretty slim? They're about one in 14 million. So that is pretty slim. So we don't, still, still do it. Still do the lottery. Yeah, that's a little, it's, it's better than that, slightly. That is true. So we want to mitigate that risk of failure, right? So how do we figure out exactly which of those needs are unmet? Because we want to get our strategy right. Well, this is best done quantitatively. And the way we do this, I'm showing you here what we lay out as a, we call it an opportunity landscape. And that little dot on there is one desired outcome statement. And behind that one dot, we'll ask anywhere from 180 to 360 people to rate the importance of that need and the level of satisfaction. And then what we do is we plot it out on here. So here, 81% of the people that we inquire with uh, say that needs four or five for importance. It's extremely important that 81% of the population, yet only 30% of the population is satisfied with their ability to, with, with, with their ability to execute along that dimension uh, in this particular market. So all this gets plugged into our, what we call our opportunity algorithm. And everything that gets plotted over here in the purple space is considered an unmet need. So the math helps us follow through and figure out which needs we need to go focus on. So this lays out the landscape. So in any given market, there are needs that are overserved, there are some needs that are underserved, and there's some needs that are appropriately served. And the chances of you getting this right by guessing is very low. Once we quantify it, you can figure out very quickly exactly where you need to focus to get the job done significantly better. And this is the difference in many cases between a success and failure in a market. So let's talk more about this because a couple of things that we discovered as we've pro progressed on this path over the years is that not all job executors are alike. In other words, not everyone is going to agree in your market which needs are really important and poorly satisfied. People think about the job differently. They execute it differently. They use different solutions to get the job done. Um, a good example here, you know, we've worked with uh, companies in the, in the automotive space and uh, interviewed people with all, about all the jobs they're trying to get done while they're driving, for example. And um, there's jobs such as you know, making sure you don't get lost or making sure you don't make a wrong turn or make sure you don't get stuck behind a vehicle or there's a whole bunch of things. But they all roll up into this bigger job of making sure you reach your destination on time. Now, it's interesting because we all try, we all have to reach destinations on time as part of our regular work routine. 
But some of us go to work in the same place each day, go to the same location. We know the, the traffic patterns. We know the backup routes. Um, we know exactly where we need to uh, park. So we don't struggle to get the job done. There's other people that have to travel each day through different parts of the city. Uh, they don't know the backup routes. They don't know the traffic patterns. They don't know where to park. And they struggle to get the job done. So same group of people, same job. Some people struggle a lot more for some reason. And some people struggle a lot less for some reason. And what this helps us figure out is that in many markets, there's segments that are both underserved and there's segments that are overserved. And this is very significant when we try to figure out who do we want to target with our products and services to make sure we're successful in the market. So we'll get into that. Now, the key thing here about segmentation is that traditional segmentation doesn't work for innovation. So if you segment your markets around demographics, psychographics, typical behavioral characteristics, it really doesn't help to determine differences in customer needs. And we've proven this over the years. We've done hundreds of studies. We have thousands of charts that look something like this. Oh, there we go. There's a little delay. Uh, we know, for example, that gender doesn't reveal unique differences in customer needs. We know that age does not reveal unique differences in customer needs. We know that region of the country does not help us, uh, this is slowing down a little bit, uh, reveal unique opportunities and customer needs. And we know that business size does not as well. In fact, I could put 100 slides up here that show all the things that don't reveal differences in customer needs. And it makes sense because if you're trying to find out differences in customer needs, the only thing you can segment around are customer needs. Now, up until now, it's been very hard to segment around customer needs because there's no agreement as to what a customer need even is. So if we don't know what a need is, how can we collect them? How can, he, how can we agree as to what they are? How can we prioritize and segment around them? Well, you can't. And that's been a huge problem. But once you segment around these unmet needs, it reveals a very different picture of the marketplace. And this is what I think is probably the most powerful part of our whole process. And it's really led us into some significant findings in the way markets are, are, are typically defined. Um, there usually is an underserved segment of the market. There usually is an overserved segment of a market. And oftentimes, there's something in between. We've seen plots of markets that are all around this particular graphic. And the key here is, once you see how the market's defined, you have to decide who, you, who do you want to target. Do you want to go after those group of people who struggle to get the job done and are willing to pay more to get the job done better with brand new platform level solution? Do you want to take a current product that's out there and tweak it a little bit to make it a little bit better so you can satisfy some of the unmet needs in the segment that's slightly underserved? Or do you want to go after the overserved segment and come up with a lower cost solution that gets the job done potentially even worse at a lower cost? These are the key decisions that you have to make. And they have a dramatic impact on the kind of product that you're going to create. And the interesting thing here is, you don't really get to pick, or at least correctly pick, what strategy to pursue. If you're going to go after a segment over here in the bottom right, then that suggests that they're really struggling to get the entire job done. Adding features to current products really isn't going to do the trick. You need a brand new platform that gets the job done significantly better. It has to be rethought. Going after the segment in the middle, you, could, uh, you don't need to create a brand new platform. What you need to do is just add a few features to the current platform to get the job done better. And the one on the left, it's overserved. If you add features to the platform to get the job done better there, you're just going to lose. 
That's, that's a losing strategy right from the start. So you don't want to pursue that. So knowing this, you know, we've laid out these different kinds of strategies over the years. And we let the data dictate what kind of strategy a company should follow. So I'll give you a few examples. In this case here, this was with a company called Bosch. They um, make a whole variety of things. But they wanted to enter the North American market with a circular saw. They had uh, skill saws, but they wanted the high-end uh, Bosch brand name in North America. This is back in the early 2000s. Now, circular saws have been around for quite a while, 80 plus years. Um, Commodity-type products, how do they win in this space? Now, their goal was to figure out, well, are there any, any unmet needs? If you looked across the market prior to, prior to segmenting and looked at the average, there were no unmet needs. But by segmenting the market around the outcomes, they found a segment that looked like this. Had 14 unmet needs, and they worked to satisfy all 14 of those unmet needs so they could help the customers get the job done significantly better. And they did that. And they came up with a solution called the CS20 Circular Saw. Uh, it's still their best-selling uh, saw in North America. It's been, uh, been at that for eight years. Now, the interesting thing here is, again, you can't manufacture an unmet need. There are only 14 unmet needs. One of the first questions they asked is, which one do we go after? It's not which one. It's which ones. You want to go after all of them. Because you can't create a product that just gets the job done a little bit better. Right? If you're going to win in the market, you have to get the job done a lot better. And think about yourselves. I mean, would you f switch from a favorite brand or a different product or pay more for a different product that gets the job done 1% better or 2% better? Probably not. But maybe 20% better, 30% better? At some point, you're going to go, yes, I would be willing to attempt to, uh, to use another product to get the job done if it promises to get the job done significantly better. So this is where we have to go. Now, how long do you think it, came, uh, it took the Bosch engineers to come up with the solutions to address those 14 unmet needs? Any guesses? A year? Six weeks? Any other guesses? How about the other extreme? Uh, that's close to right. It took about, um, it took a half a day. It took about three, three to four hours. And the reason was they already had all the ideas. They are, they've, been, they've, they've done this for 30 years. They had every idea, but the problem was they had thousands of ideas. Thousands of them. They didn't know which 14 they should combine in the circular saw to get the job done best. Again, what are the chances of randomly coming up with a solution that addresses 14 unmet needs if you don't know what they are? You can't do it. But once you know what they are, you can put the solution together that gets the job done significantly better and win in the marketplace. Now, I like this example for two reasons. One reason is it shows you the level of precision that you need in order to win in a commoditized marketplace. And then it shows you the level of precision that you can get using this tool set to identify precisely those 14 unmet needs in one segment of the market, which is often what it takes to be successful. That's the whole point. Now, guessing shouldn't be an option, right? You don't want to guess at your future. You're here, you don't want to waste your time. Uh, you don't want to waste your careers. You don't want to work on PC juniors. You want to work on winning products in the marketplace. Of course, of course all markets uh, don't look like that. Some look like this, where, yeah, they're pretty satisfied. And um, adding features to the current solution to get the job done better really is not the right thing to do. Uh, this was the case with Crow on Track.
I see a hand up for questions. What I'm going to do is we're going to have a Q&A for about 20 minutes after this. So if you have some questions, just um, jot them down and we'll make sure we get, uh, get to them. Now, in the case of Skill Bosch, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in the case of Coral Entrack, they, um, they were trying to enter this electronic discovery market or create it, basically. Uh, prior to this, people would do electronic dis uh, or do discovery by hand. They'd go into companies and read through papers, and they'd uh, try to find the evidence to build a, a legal case. That was that was ultimately the goal. And what they did is they discovered a uh, a solution that could help people get this job done. Initially, not quite as well, but um, for a lot less cost. So they built this platform, and they've been building it out for the last uh, 12 years or so. And still today, they lead the industry. And the way they did this is they got all those needs, they laid them out in priority order, and year one, you know, they come up with a solution that addresses the top 40. Next year, the top 20, or the next 20. The next year, the next 10, and so on. It gets very hard for companies to, to leapfrog them because they are systematically working on getting the entire job done on a single platform, which should be the goal. So this is a great software solution, and again, the concept is exactly the same help customers get the entire job done on a single platform so they don't have to cobble together lots of different solutions to make it happen. Of course, all markets don't look like that either. Sometimes you see a situation like this, as we did work in Microsoft in their software assurance space. Um, people were satisfied with the one job that the, the product uh, was initially designed to perform. And the way to win here, when your market is satisfied along all these different dimensions and appropriately served, well, the only way to help grow a market in this case is to add features to the platform to get more jobs done. So you have to think about more jobs. This is a great little device here too, to think about this concept. You know, what was this device 20, 30 years ago? It's just a pointer, right? Is this a pointer? I'm not even sure. But um, this was a pointer years ago. But as time progressed, these devices became more sophisticated. They used to change slides, they used to darken the screen, they used to tell you how much time you have left on your presentation. They get more jobs done. The same thing was true with Microsoft. IT managers were trying to get other jobs done that were underserved. They just had to discover them, figure out which ones they are, lay them out in priority order, and add solutions to their platform to get more jobs done, which they did very successfully, generated about an additional billion dollars in revenue for them by doing it in this fashion. And the last one is really my favorite. This is, I think, the, the, the hidden opportunity for all of us. I find this intriguing because in almost every market, there is a highly underserved segment. This is a group of people that, for some reason, struggle more than anyone else to get the job done better. It could be that group of people that are, for example, you know, struggling hard to reach their destination on time, or to pass on a life lesson to their child, or to listen to music, or whatever reason. They're struggling more than anyone else. This segment of people, if it exists, is usually willing to pay more to get the job done better. So this kind of segment offers a great possible opportunity for you. It allows you to enter into what we call a profit share strategy. Now, this kind of strategy, I think, is, is well, it's probably the most profitable strategy companies have. And uh, many of the, the, really, the bellwethers of, of innovation do exactly this. So if you can think about Nest, for example, uh, fairly new to this game, uh, but think about this. Here's a company that had never created a thermostat before, getting into a new market. Their chances of success are extremely low. But what do they do? They not only get into the market, but they are charging seven times more than anyone else
for a product to get the same job done. Everyone else is at about $35, they're at $250. And you can think, well, how many people are crazy enough to spend $250 on a thermostat? Anyone in here? <laughs> well, and you look at the numbers, and it matches what we found here, too. About 10%, 8% of the population is crazy enough to buy that for $250. But what that does for Nest is it generates about 30% profit share in the industry for them, which is fantastic. That makes them immediately a, a huge threat to all the other manufacturers in the space. Because as they start taking that product and making, making it better and better, and then taking that product and dropping its price, it's a huge threat across the board to everybody. It's a beautiful strategy. Dyson, of course, did this years ago with their vacuum cleaners. They charge five times more. And with about 24% market share, they have about 59% profit share. Of course, Apple is the, uh, is the best at this. A uh, great example, 12% market share, 70% profit share. And I think this is where you'd like to be as a company, is to figure out, is there a segment of people that are highly underserved and willing to pay more, a lot more in many cases, to get the job done better? And we found examples of this in literally every market. Every now and then there isn't the opportunity. But in most markets, there is a segment of people who are struggling more than others. The key is, why are they struggling more? You have to figure that out. That's where the segmentation comes in and where the unmet needs come in. So I think this sums it up, right? What we've done is we've answered all these key questions before we even had an idea, right? We know who our customer is. It's the job executor. It's not the buyer. It's not the uh, installer. What problem are they trying to solve? We know the functional job that they're trying to execute. We've broken it down step by step, and we know all the metrics they use to measure success along each step of the way. We take those needs, we quantify them, and then we can figure out which segment of the market we want to go target. You know, is there that highly underserved segment that's willing to pay more to get the job done better? And then from there, we know precisely which unmet needs we want to go target. In the case of Bosch, these 14 unmet needs, perfect. Right? So that's the goal. And as I mentioned earlier, it only took the Bosch engineers a half a day to figure out the answer, but it took them years to figure out the problem and defining it in such a, a precise way that they could address it. That's really the key to success here. It's doing, whoops, it's doing it in this fashion. And the goal here is to get the job done significantly better. Uh, when iPod came along, it did get the job done significantly better. It got more steps in the job done, which was great. But of course, then Zoom comes out a number of years later. Interestingly, in the same year Pandora came out. Now, this is interesting because Microsoft could have went down either path. They could have went down the, the MP3 path, or they could have went down the Pandora path. And here they are coming out with a, a copy product that doesn't get the job done any better in a time frame when there is a new technology coming out that gets the job done significantly better. This again, the product-centric focus doesn't necessarily win, but focusing on the underlying job will better uh, increase your chances of success, which is the whole point. You don't have to gamble on innovation, right? You don't have to walk the organization unsure of what the customer's needs are and having discussions, in many cases heated discussions with your peers as to what the product should do and why it should do it. And I know many companies who spend lots of time doing just that, right? If you can't gain agreement as to what you're trying to accomplish as a company, it's going to be a lot harder to succeed. So you pose the question then. Do you want to be an ideas first company 
and just brainstorm solutions and, and hope that they'll succeed in the marketplace? Or do you want to be more disciplined and take a different approach where you can lay out, literally lay out a roadmap that allows you to measure the possibility of success? Well, that's up for you to decide. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org. Thank you.